A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, by the way, thanks to anybody who noticed that uh, I took yesterday off. No, and I'm I'm not being facetious here. I, those who were like, "Hey, is everything okay?" Thank you for noticing. First of all, I was just filling in for a friend here on the local radio show, but we're back in uh, full strength today. And Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is here to, uh, well, to uh, I guess to get together in our weekly wrong think session. Eric, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I, I was out gazing at the clunker in my garage a little while ago, which brings us perhaps to the subject of today's chat. <laughs> yeah, I saw your article on on what cash for clunkers was really about, and I, yeah. I have to admit, yeah, I hadn't thought about this because it's been a few years, but I do remember how we we our family outgrew our existing car, and we thought, well, we need to up we need to upgrade and get a car that can fit everybody. Mm-hmm. This was after cash for clunkers, and boy, were we in for a rude awakening as far as prices. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why cars have become so unaffordable is because all of the affordable cars, or at least a lot of them, got thrown away, got destroyed. And they presented this as a way to stimulate what was then the uh, the moribund, if not bankrupt, domestic car industry, in particular uh, GM, which actually had gone bankrupt, uh, but also Ford, which was in trouble at the time, uh, and and Chrysler and Dodge and everything else. And so uh, this was back during the, uh, the Obama era, and they came up with this grand idea of giving people money if they would agree to throw away a perfectly operational car. And this is key. You know, they characterize these as clunkers, but these cars had to have been registered and in use. In other words, not some old brush bucket that was sitting on jack stands that had to be dragged from the backyard uh, down to a wrecking yard somewhere. These were the kind of cars that when you and I were 16 and 17 years old were readily available for 1500 bucks or so or even less. Uh, and for that reason, uh, provided access to a car for young and first-time buyers. And that that step up the ladder has been kicked out from under. And that was the, the real purpose of this cash for clunkers thing, in my opinion. Um, it was to disconnect and separate the rising generation from car ownership. And they succeeded wildly. Um, something on the order of 22% of people who are currently 16 to 24 don't even have a driver's license because why bother? Right. It's, as, I, as I mentioned in my article, I don't have a private pilot's license as much as I'd like to fly. And the reason for that is I can't afford an airplane. So what would be the point? I, you know, I'm still trying to get my mind around. It wasn't enough that, okay, well, you know, if you ret- retired that car, you know, there's still plenty of good usable parts. In fact, the, the pick yeah. apart yard here in, in, in my locale, they do brisk business with people who go pull their own car parts and fix things from, you know, cars that have been wrecked or otherwise, you know, retired. But they didn't, that wasn't good enough. They wanted to destroy them. What was it they were doing to the engine to make sure that these, yeah, these could never pouring, be used? They were, they were, pour, they were putting, uh, one of the conditions, that, that, they, that they required of you in order for you to get the credit was that silica, which is an abrasive compound, would be poured into the engine, and then the engine would be run until it's seized. Mm. Uh, in other words, the object was to destroy the engine, and the same with the transmission. They destroyed, not just recycled, destroyed all the operational parts so that not only was the car destroyed, but as you say, people who maybe needed a, a replacement good-used engine that they could afford, that they could go to a wrecking yard and, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that, put it in my car, and, and now my car is good to go for another 10 years. The purpose was to deny them that option, too. It was about gratuitous destruction, which is just the kind of thing that these authoritarian governments 
love to do. So what's this rumor that I hear that Cash for Clunkers 2.0 is making an appearance? Well, I wish it were only a rumor, but in a number of states, uh, and you can guess which ones, uh, they are rebooting that program. Now, this is at the state level, the, the Cash for Clunkers thing uh, that we're talking about um, from the early 2000s, early mid-2000s was federal. But at the state level, some of these states are now paying people, I think the figure is $6,000, if they will uh, throw away their uh, gas-powered vehicle and buy an electric vehicle. Same kind of principle. They're trying to uh, you know, put that little carrot in front of the donkey, uh, and then, of course, the donkey doesn't notice the stick that's about to hit him on top of the head. Wow. Okay, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Now, Eric, these clunkers, these old, inefficient, uh, polluting, you know, uh, plant-killing, uh, earth-raping cars, you know, what What mm-hmm. good could it, in other words, what good is there to have a clunker in the economy? Who's Who is it useful to? Well, let's see. There are many facets to this. Who's it useful to? How about the person who can't afford to spend the close to $50,000 it now costs to buy the average new car? Let's start with that. Um, and the second thing is let's define what we're talking about, uh, pollution and clunkers. Do these things actually pollute? And if so, is it meaningful? And the answer is, generally speaking, no. Uh, you know, the public has been led to believe that uh, the gas engines that are being made now and that have been made since the early 2000s somehow emit lots of pollution. And part of the way they've succeeded in doing that is to redefine pollution to encompass carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide uh, is a, a gas that has nothing to do with pollution. Maybe it has something to do with climate change if you buy into that, but it's got nothing at all to do with pollution. Yet, and I think this is interesting, they try to characterize it. They do characterize it as a pollutant. Because psychologically, they want people to think of the car as dirty. And if they get people to think of it as dirty, well, then it follows. Well, we got to get rid of that dirty thing. Yep. For the same reason, they stopped talking about uh, CO2, and now they use the word carbon. And that's not accidental. They use carbon because the average person hears carbon, and what do they think about? They think about, like, the dirty carbon that, that, that smudges their hands and smudges their, their clothes after they've been handling, say, a pencil with a lead in it, right? right. That's not accidental. Wow. Well— my wife and I uh, had to had to purchase a car, a used car, at the beginning of uh, 2022, which was uh, coincidentally like the worst time <laughs> ever to go shopping <laughs> yeah. for a car. Yeah. But uh, but that's what we had to do. And, you know, I, I've hoped, as my kids especially have gotten older and started getting their driver's licenses, my last two at home are now both, you know, right there at that point. One has his license and his own clunker, thankfully. But, you know, my mm-hmm. daughter, she's in the position. She'll be needing a vehicle. Um my goodness, it's it's not getting better. No, it's getting much worse. You know, they've priced kids out of the market, uh, and, and they've done it not just by pricing them out of cars, but insurance, of course, has gotten to be much more prohibitively expensive for the same reason, because you know the cars that are out there are more expensive, and because they're more expensive, most people can't afford to pay cash for them, can they, particularly a kid? So now you're talking about financing a car, and if you finance a car, then you have to pay full liability coverage insurance, and that typically costs a lot more than a basic, bare-bones, state-mandatory minimum policy on a quote-unquote clunker. I just love it when government interferes with the free market and, and you know, helps us, wink, wink, you know. It just makes my life you know, so much it, better. It's, it's worse than that. You know, it's not just as it was in the past when we were talking about various rent-seeking and grift scams. Uh, I think what's evident now is the maliciousness. I harp on that because I think it's there. I mean, they, they're, they're actively trying to hurt us. It's not just that they're trying to enrich themselves and line their pockets. They are purposefully trying 
to impose harms on people because they despise us. You know, and, and if you think that's too strong, you know, dig into this a little bit more. They don't want you and I living in a single family home, owning a car, potentially getting on an airplane and traveling somewhere. They want the world for themselves and they want to herd us, the lowing cattle, into their 15 minute freedom cities where we'll be eating crackers like in the Soil and Green movie back in the 70s. Wow. Well, just remember if whatever the government official title is for a policy under today's rules, it usually means exactly the opposite. Absolutely. It means exactly the opposite. I I published an article earlier today that people listening might be interested in that gets into this a little bit. And the the article talks about how um, EV adoption may be slowing, you know, as if you're going to the orphanage to pick up a kid that you want. (laughs) Right. Wow. As opposed to. Yeah. It's amazing that as a journalist and I've been doing this a long time, this stuff now is just it goes without comment. Whereas at one time, a copy editor editor would have said, wait a minute. What are you using that kind of language for? What we're talking about here is there is a government regulation that's requiring manufacturers to build EVs. It's not about adopting anything. Stop using such greasy, misleading language. Here, here. No, I'm with you. I, I, I don't know what to say as far as that push towards EVs. It really feels like, you know, they're taking that long-term approach. This isn't about convincing us. It's about just grinding us down until our resistance is used up. Yeah, and you know, people who are on the fence about this, uh, I, I I ask them to consider why is it necessary to push if these EVs are the benefit that that they're claimed to be. Yeah, those who are pushing them, if they're a superior product, if they're better, why does it have to be pushed on people? And the answer is self-evident because they're not. Yep, yep. People people tend to vote with their wallets. That's that's a real good indicator of you know how they perceive things. And if that doesn't seem like a good deal, they're not going to fork over the money. Yeah, I can't remember whether it was Hayek or Von Mises or one of them who said something to the effect that good ideas don't need to be forced. Ooh, yeah. No, that's uh, there's there's more truth in that than, than I think a lot of people would realize. Mm-hmm. Speaking yep. speaking of truths that, that need to be addressed, we've got to take a quick break here. But Eric, when we come back, I want to talk about a recent column you had about slow in the curves. Oh, yeah. This mm-hmm. is... This, That'll be fun. This has to do with people's driving abilities, and actually it hit, hit home for me. I'll explain just the other side of our commercial break. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. If you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, those would be show notes for November 28th. You'll find a link to Eric's website. I want to click on that. Take some time. Read the articles. Read the comments. You'll come away better informed and possibly much more encouraged. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters is my guest. Eric, you had an article about slow in the curves, which really hit mm-hmm. home for me because this, this kind of tapped into... Uh, a difference between my driving style and my wife's driving style. Talk to me about uh, people who come up on a curve and, and don't feel safe, so they slow down, but then, you know, gun it when they're in the straight. They only feel safe going the speed limit when they're going straight. Um, well, what what exactly is behind cool. that? Well, there's a, a great and growing disparity between the capability of modern cars and the ability of the typical driver to drive. So on the one hand, you get into any modern car, it really doesn't matter what it is, what type of car it is, who makes it, they feel perfectly safe and stable 
going 80 miles an hour down a, a straight road, don't they? You've driven them, I've driven them, we've all driven them. It doesn't feel precarious at all. Of course, when you come to a curve, all of a sudden it doesn't feel so safe, and these people will then slam on the brakes uh, and you know, have this herky-jerky driving style. But the take-home point that I wanted to make in the article was that if you don't feel safe driving at, at the speed limit in a curve, you might want to reconsider how fast you're driving in the straight because you have a false sense of security about how safe it actually is because of the extent of your own abilities as a driver. No, that's, uh, that makes sense. And I, look, I don't want to sound like I'm a really evil person, but to me, the, the most dangerous and frustrating people on the road are the, the slow, um, indecisive drivers, you know, who, you know, for instance, slow on a freeway on-ramp rather than trying to match speed and merge. Um, I, I don't think they realize that. I'm just being cautious, but they don't realize the danger they're creating for other people. Well, I'll raise you. I think there's the, uh, the aggressive but inept driver. And I was prompted to write the article uh, because I had an experience, one of many, uh, the day before I wrote the article, where I was driving on the straight road that leads to the mountain, which is uh, a series of switchbacks that, that takes you down into uh, downtown. Anyway, I had this guy in a new truck right on the bumper of my old truck, you know, uh, right on my bumper. Uh, couldn't, you know, couldn't get this guy to back off. Uh, and, and he's driving very aggressively and very fast. We come to the curves, he's gone because he can't keep up with me in my 22-year-old truck because I know how to drive and he doesn't. And, you know, it doesn't occur to these people that maybe they ought to slow down and have some respect for their own limitations or at least learn how to drive before they start driving fast. No, I, I would agree. So let's talk for a moment about acquiring those good driving skills. Not not every not everybody has the chance to go to was it Bondurant to you know yeah. school to to learn how to to drive. But where can a person reasonably pick up the kind of skills that that would translate into you know being a better, more safe and and uh, competent driver? Well, you know, it's gotten much harder, hasn't it? Because we were almost forced to acquire them, weren't we? When we were kids, we got a clunker, didn't we, without any advanced safety technology. And typically, it had a manual transmission. Uh, it certainly didn't have anti-lock brakes or stability control. And so we had to learn how to control it, didn't we? Oh, yeah. We learned how to deal with wet and snow. We learned not to tailgate because we <laughs> you realized back in those days, if you did and the car ahead of you were to break, you're going to eat his bumper and it's going to be all your fault. So people had more respect for uh, physics. Uh, even if they didn't really understand them. And they drove within their limits until their limits got higher. Nowadays, the cars feel so safe. They're encouraging people to be less skilled. They're, they're transferring all of the responsibility for controlling the car onto technology. And that has created this, this herd of passive people who sit and peck at their cell phones or the cell phone that's built into the dash of the car, you know, the LCD touchscreen. And as you say, they're not in the game. They're not paying attention. So you almost have to be very active and, and wanting to acquire those skills. As a parent, you can teach your kid. You know, you take your kid out to a parking lot, teach them how to, how to drive, or even, you know, pay for them to go to a school where they teach driving, uh, driving control. It's worth it. It costs a couple thousand bucks, but if it saves you a totaled car or a dead kid, it's money well spent. Beautiful. Okay, so on that vein, since it, here's something that I'm facing right now. My daughter has passed her written driving test. She just needs to go take the skills test. She needs practice parking. And I mean angle parking, perpendicular parking, parallel parking. Um, any ideas on a good way to, to get those skills down? I'm working with her, but I am open to anything you could, you could share with me that might help expedite yep. that process. 
but here's the here's the way to do that. Find yourself uh, an empty parking lot. Church parking lots are good, and most of the time the church will be fine with with doing this. I did this with my niece, and and you can go there and you can put out some cones to represent a parking spot, for example, and uh, and just let them practice. You can show them, let them watch you how you do it. Uh, explain to them how you move maneuver the car, what you're looking for, how to get. Uh, sight lines established and 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 how how to perceive your vehicle in relation to where other people other people and vehicles are. It's one of those things that just takes practice. So take them out and, and practice. You know, you don't learn to throw a ball uh, the day of the game. You learn to throw a ball by practicing before the day of the game. Yep. And and look, I have to admit, you know, it's it's been forty years or more since I uh, got my license, and I, I may have forgotten. That is one of the tougher things, especially learning to parallel park. I, I do recall that. Mm-hmm. That was not something that was just intuitive. Now, since then, you know, basic geometry, learning how to how to use mirrors and angles, <clears throat> I can estimate it pretty good. But, uh, man, my poor daughter, you know, it's it's the simple, even angle parking. She is just mm-hmm. like, it, it mentally, that, that really intimidates her. Well, it's, it's really, I think, uh, predominantly about... Um, acquiring a sense of spatial relationships, and that's something that's experiential. You have to do it to get good at it, um, and everything else as well. Uh, you know, I took my niece last summer to a, the church parking lot down the road. I happened to have a, a Mazda Miata that week, and she learned how to drive a stick using that Miata. And at first, she was very hesitant and very timid, and you know, was afraid that she was going to stall the car. And I, I used the parking brake to kind of help her, you know, so she wouldn't have to worry about the car rolling back, for example. And, and after a little while of doing this, she got it. And it was almost as if I could see the gears in her head meshing and, and, and connecting. And she got it, you know. And after that, it was just a matter of her practicing to get better at it. And the same applies to parallel parking. Okay. I, I like the idea. And I do I do think a church parking lot actually uh, can, can be a great place because, number one, it's empty, has a lot of space. And there's also different kinds yep. of parking depending on, you know, the depending on which parking lot you get. Some will have angles, some will have perpendicular. Ah, the stuff we take for granted, you, right? <laughs> yeah, you want to take the pressure off. You know, being in a, a space like that where you don't have to worry about other people, other cars, it's a controlled environment. Uh, and so that will make the kid, you know, feel like they're not as much under pressure and they don't have to worry about uh, about damaging something. Set up some cones, you know, pick up some cones down at the hardware store and use them to represent a parked car ahead. So, you know, if he or she bumps into the cone, who cares? You know, they're not going to have to worry about, uh, you know, paying to get the other car fixed. Uh, that's the, the best way to get them going. And then after a while, they'll be able to do it on the street. And after a while of doing that, they'll be good at it. Interesting. I'm going to shift gears here. we got just a couple minutes left. But, Eric, I don't know if you saw the New York Post article. Um, I wanted to get your reaction to this. The headline says, Moderna keeps tabs on high-risk, that's their high risk quote anti-vaccine celebrities like elon musk uh novak Djokovic, uh, russell brand etc and this this article talks about they they seriously Mm -hmm. have a former fbi agent keeping tabs on these people who are critical of vaccine mandates i I just wanted to throw that out there ask if you had heard of it or what your reaction is yeah well not only have i heard of it but i'm not surprised are you they they want to keep control of the narrative what i find even more astounding and it, it doesn't. It, it often goes uncommented upon. Is you'll read a news article about some drug that these companies are pushing, and they'll cite Pfizer studies say, or according to <laughs> Moderna studies, what? Come again? 
You know, that's like yeah. saying, you know, when you go to see some sleazy used car dealer, yeah, my mechanic says it, you know, the guy in the back, he, he, he checked it all out. It's, it's, it's in great running shape. Trust, just trust us. Honest John's used cars. John yeah. himself says, I'm honest. You can trust me. No, it's yeah. good but rule to of thumb. Get back to your point. You know, if, if, if they're, if they're, they sh- the fact that they're so worried about the truth tells you the nature of their lies, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, if we were on the wrong side, if we were the ones misrepresenting the truth, well, the truth would make it evident that we were the ones on the wrong side. But in fact, it's the opposite. And what they want to do is suppress the truth. That's the, the, the synopsis of this issue, in my opinion. And that, my friends, is why Eric writes as he does. And that's why I do what I do. And we're going to continue to do that just as long as we're possible, as long as it's possible for us to. Eric, Before they throw us in the camps, right? Right. Like I say, I hope I hope my cell is next to yours. We'll have some great conversations. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Eric, thanks so much. You bet, Brian. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, by the way, thank you for letting me enjoy. It wasn't exactly a day off yesterday. I didn't. Uh, I did not uh, publish an episode of uh, the Brian Hyde Show, but I was filling in for my friend Bill Colley, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So sorry. <laughs> Given the opportunity, I, I do like to fill in for Bill on occasion. He is a local radio host uh, here in Southern Idaho, where I live, and uh, it's it's always it's always an enlightening opportunity to to sit back uh, behind the console at a real live radio station and and uh, and to hold forth but i'm glad to be back here and there's still some more great stuff to talk about following up after our, our chat with uh, eric peters you hear the term gaslight a lot today i mean this is very common you're gaslighting me man and and i think most of us understand when you're being gaslit you are uh, you're being lied to i think the best illustration i ever saw for this was um Someone says, hey, uh, what does it mean to be gaslit? And the the demonstration was, I already told you what it means to be gaslit. No, you didn't. I just asked you what it means. I already told you. No, you didn't. You're lying. But you didn't tell me. You're crazy. (laughs) That's how you gaslight somebody. It's, you know, messing with their mind, trying to make them doubt what is real versus what isn't. I've got a great article here from uh, John F. Noggle. And this was published on the Brownstone Institute's website. And he talks about this 1994 movie, Gaslight, starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, and and likens it to counseling a gaslit nation. I thought you would like this. In this case, uh, Reverend John F. Noggle writes, In 1944, the truly remarkable movie, Gaslight, starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, was released to theaters to great success and acclaim. Its plot centers around a woman who is being manipulated by her husband to believe that she is becoming insane, even to the point where he uses her observation of the gaslights dimming in their home as proof of her hallucinations or false memories. Now, so impactful was this movie that it gave birth to the term gaslighting, which, and here's an official definition, is a form of psychological abuse where a person causes someone to question their sanity, memories, or perception of reality. People who experience gaslighting may feel confused, anxious, or unable to trust themselves. 
So it's one of the principal forms of abuse that a victim experiences at the hands of a malignant narcissist. Gaslight depicts this abuse vividly as the wife's very real memories are used as proof against her that she's insane. And they actually have a link to the article, which you can find in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These will be the show notes for November 28th. You can click on this and see for yourself. And it's it's pretty eye-opening. I mean, as a kid, I watched this as a kid with my parents, and it was boring. <laughs> I didn't understand. As an adult, I have a whole different slant on this. But the author here says the scene depicting narcissistic abuse came to mind as Google's no doubt maliciously programmed algorithm decided that I needed to see the following headline. This is from Fortune. Americans are upset about surviving a pandemic and paying for the privilege. They want these prices to be back where they were. I bet that's a take you haven't heard yet. Most Americans, says Lisa Cook of the Federal Reserve, says uh, she says they're not just looking for disinflation, they're looking for deflation. Now, the article itself includes a parade of experts subtly saying that people are crazy for thinking there's even a problem at all. Yeah, that sounds about right. For instance, here's a snippet from the article. Quote, even for people whose incomes have kept pace with prices, research has long found that people hate inflation more intently than its economic impact would suggest. Most people do not expect their pay to keep up with rising prices, even if it does the higher pay may come with a time lag. They're obsessing over the fact that the prices they pay for things that are very salient, gas, food, grocery store prices, rent, those things still seem elevated even though they're not increasing as rapidly as they were, Hirschbein said, end quote. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's all probably just my imagination that my son had to fork out 300 bucks in gas, which, by the way, came out of his own pocket as a high school senior. That's for one month of being able to drive himself to and from work and uh, take himself to and from his school events. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's wonderful. He's got his own car and can, can do that. 300 bucks in a month. I don't know about you, but even as a kid, 300 bucks, you know, as a high school student, that did not come easily. I feel his pain. So since the abusiveness of the article in question is so very subtle, In this case, Reverend Noggle says, I thought it would be better to summarize it in the manner of a scene from Gaslight, as if those in power were speaking to America. And here's what he imagines they would say. Oh, America, if we could only get inside that brain of yours and understand what makes you do these crazy twisted things. Do you not remember how terrified we, how terrified uh, you were after we showed you those images from Bergamo and New York City? How you begged us, your betters, for safety? How we lovingly allowed you to stay home and order things to be delivered with government checks, which you cashed. How we brought you safely back into the world with our gift of muzzles and injections. The fact that you are even alive today is a credit to our brilliance and care for you. And all you can do is complain about the price of food and energy. How ungrateful. What a small price to pay for your survival. Your ingratitude shows itself even more by your demands that prices return to what they were in 2019. Do you not understand how dangerous and hurtful deflation is to us, your loving caretakers? After all we've done for you, you turn against us, your benefactors, and desire to bring us harm. You are monstrously insane, and we shall have you put away from the levers of power so that you may bring harm to yourself and us no more. You're lucky you even have jobs, and it's to our credit that we even allow that. End quote. (laughs) I'd say he summarizes that pretty well. 
And so much of what we've gone through in these recent years is understandable as a form of societal level narcissistic abuse. We weren't allowed to leave our homes, see our friends, go to church or work, or even make our own medical decisions. We were constantly told that those in power were to credit every time the scary numbers went down and that we were to blame every time the scary numbers went up. He says, I distinctly remember Governor Mike DeWine of, I, of Ohio lecturing his citizens as if, as if it were their fault that he had to impose a mask mandate. You made me do this, baby, <laughs> said the wife, Peter. President Biden's infamous, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. That's a textbook example of narcissistic rage. And in this case, uh, Reverend Noggle says, if I were counseling a victim of narcissistic abuse in my office or in the confessional, my immediate suggestion would be to break off contact as completely as possible as the relationship is unrecoverable. So how does a nation respond when the abusers are politicians from both parties and nearly the entirety of the administrative state and legacy media? What What a powerful question to ask. How do you respond? But the very fact that you're listening to this program tells me you're probably one of those people who's thought about, how do I respond? In fact, you probably spend a good portion of your waking hours thinking about that or acting on that. I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound dramatic here, but I do pretty much spend, you know, every waking minute plotting for how I will continue on with my life and continue on with, you know, growing my tribe of, of family and, and community when all of this rotten political edifice finally collapses under the weight of its own corruption and rot. Yes, that doesn't sound very hopeful, but I'm telling you, I'm looking beyond the current system finally crumbling down, and I'm looking with anticipation to what comes next. In fact, I want to be one of the people who helps to build what comes next. That's why I study the things that I study. That's why I share the ideals and the ideas that I share. I believe there are very sound principles and practices upon which human happiness is is predicated. Freedom being one of the most important. In fact, it may be the most essential. You can have everything else, but if you don't have freedom, life sucks. Living in the most comfortable open-air prison, you know, that, that you can possibly live in, that's not a very good consolation prize. And, and I, I don't care if that sounds radical to some, because I'm guessing at some level, in your heart, you understand that you were not born to live in chains. And you weren't born to be saddled and ridden about uh, by some politician or some bureaucrat, you know, whipping you every so often with their girt to try to, you know, make you go faster. Nope. Nope. I'm a free man. You are a free individual. And the sooner we recognize that and are willing to claim it, and by the way, that doesn't have to be a violent thing. I mean, they'll portray, hey, you're not obeying. Are you threatening me? No, I'm, do- I'm doing something even more dangerous. Because, see, now, you know, an, an, uh, just a head-on threat, I show up with a pitchfork or a torch or a gun, and all right, things are going to be done my way. They know how to meet that. That's what the state is best at. It's about using force, coercion power. But you know what it can't cope with? The one thing it absolutely cannot overcome? When a person makes the choice to withdraw his or her consent. Yep, that's still in your power. Oh, sure. We'll find you. That's great. We'll put you in jail. Great. You won't have my consent, though. 
and it will make them stew. There are ulcers being formed in bureaucratic bellies at this moment over the thought that someone somewhere is not obeying. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, my thanks uh, that you would take the time to tune in today. I know that our, our Wrong Think sessions with Eric Peters, this is a pretty popular feature of the show. And I'm very grateful to Eric to make the time to join me for a half hour each week uh, so we can we can pick his ample brain. And if you want to uh, subscribe to the podcast version of the show, please go to thebrianhydeshow.com. You can subscribe to my show notes there. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast if you feel like if, if you feel like this is actually bringing something to your life that that is uh, of value, well, uh, you know I, I use the old phrase here that everybody should buy me a cup of coffee, but feel free to become a supporter of the show too. That is an option, and again, you can find uh, details on how to do that right there at the at the website. So, do you need to find your happiness once more? Got an interesting and kind of novel way to do that. This is from an article I picked up off of intellectualtakeout.org. A Case for Ancient Books, Recovering True Happiness. This is from C.G. Jones. And he talks about how something important is missing from contemporary fiction and nonfiction. He says, specifically, I think the majority of books today lack a sense of universality. In other words, ideas and perspectives that extend beyond the bounds of the society and culture in which they were written. Now, certainly, it's essential to read works that reflect our own society and culture. But isn't it equally important to consume material that transcends our own time? Now, that's a good question. So, C.J. Jones says, look, or C.G. Jones, rather, says, I've been reading ancient texts, texts, rather, that offer intellectual and spiritual springboards for reflection and meditation. Now, these include the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, the basic writings by, I don't know if I'm going to say this name right, Zhuaganzi, and the writings of Greek Stoics and Epicureans. Now, maybe you don't have these books sitting on your shelf, but here's the key. You could do it. You could, if you wanted. The reason you would want such books on your shelf is because, as C.G. Jones points out, these works offer philosophical perspectives that are not really discussed or considered anymore, given that so much of what we think about the world comes to us via television or social media. So we're hard-pressed to find someone accurately discussing the distinction between the Stoics and Epicureans outside of a college or university classroom. We're wading through societal waters that seem to put more value on social media posts and online engagement than on the truly important questions about our place in the universe. Now, there is a point at which we realize what these sophisticated modes of technology feed us cannot possibly sustain us philosophically or spiritually. By the way, that's something that uh, Robert Hutchins, who was the president of the University of Chicago, and Mortimer Adler recognized more than 70 years ago when they compiled the great books of Western civilization. It was for this very reason. They felt like we were experiencing a kind of philosophical, uh, spiritual, and intellectual malnutrition. Each generation a little more starved than the one that came before it. Now, C.G. Jones says... We need more than the next political hot take. What we need, both personally and culturally, is a reflection upon the ancient writers. The writers and thinkers of the ancient past, uh, the ancient past rather, had less distraction than we have today. And perhaps because of this, they were able to think more clearly and critically 
about the nature of human experience. In fact, he says, one ancient line that immediately comes to mind when I think about the society in which we live is this one. The mark of a moderate man is freedom from his own ideas. In other words, while there's something to be said for staying informed about the world, we don't have to have opinions about every issue. Despite this, freedom from personal ideas can scarcely be found in any form of contemporary writing. We in the United States have, in some ways, become a society of hyper-opinionated individuals who are tickled by the sensation of our own thoughts. Now, he says, here's an idea. These ancient writers from all different parts of the world seem to operate under the fundamental assumption that the key to a good life wasn't found in looking toward the material world. For instance, Aurelius was the emperor of Rome, but he was never fooled into believing that his rulership would lead to joy or happiness. Similarly, the writings of Lao Tzu don't suggest that we must vote for the right presidential candidate or make a certain amount of money or have the latest and greatest consumer product in order to be satisfied. But we've been duped into believing that these modern-day desires are the key to a good life. Can you see where that would be an error? So whether you're a student of the Bible or Greek epics or Eastern philosophies, there is so much to be gained from taking the time to read ancient texts. All of human history could be summed up in our effort to achieve our interpretation of happiness. And while it may make us feel good to have the latest technology, the newest car, or our dream job, those things ultimately cannot lead us to contentment. Lao Tzu, Aurelius, uh, Jesus, Seneca, and Lucretius all understood this. Contentment can only be discovered when we seek a piece of eternity that does not come with the latest smartphone update or the next Supreme Court decision. Now, he says, King Solomon's credited with writing that all is vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's perhaps more truth in those three words than in much of contemporary writing. Now, of course, this is not to say there are no worthwhile books written today, but there is something universal and lasting that ancient texts offer you that can guide us through these turbulent times. And he says, I invite you, dear reader, to join me in a continued exploration of the oldest and wisest books. I know. It sounds like such a, well, it's a book, man. It's not even moving pictures or car chases or explosions. That would have been my reaction, you know, not so many years ago. And it's not like you have to spend all of your time with a nose in an old book. I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about the best thing about reading these old books and exposing our minds to these old ideas is that it transports us, at least temporarily, out of our time and out of our own mindset and into another person's mind in another time. And what you see as you read these things is you find they had their blind spots. But they also had some very amazing things to offer. And so I would, uh, I would encourage you, indulge that curiosity. Now, I got to tell you, the first time I ever read Plato, my head literally hurt. I, it gave me a headache. I was like, really? That's the first time reading a book ever, ever made me, you know, physically feel pain. Maybe it was just stressful. But, you know, Plato was not that easy of a read initially. And this is true of other old texts. I mean, look, even people who read, you know, the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence stumble and stammer, what the heck is that word? It sounds like a foreign language to us because we're just not acquainted with the ideas, the ideals, the various words. 
So if you want to break that trend of chronological snobbery that assumes that oh, we know what's best because we're the latest generation, we have the uh, all the knowledge of everybody that came before us, that's great. But you think uh, we're all that in a bag of chips. No, we're not. We have our blind spots just as Aristotle had his blind spots. Brilliant guy. But part of his brilliance was he says, hey, we need slaves. Somebody's got to do the work while I'm doing the thinking. I mean, to him, that seemed like a pretty rational point of view. And there's a lot of things that he said. There's a lot of uh, information and and ideas that that he fleshed out that, that are just brilliantly explained. Still doesn't make slavery right. So if he had that blind spot, certainly we have them as well. And 100 years from now, 500 years from now, 3,000 years from now, people will be looking at us and the decisions we made and the ideas that we held and saying, how could they be so blind? So it, it should promote a little bit of humility, perhaps some introspection and a willingness to learn from the mistakes others have made and the ideas that didn't really pan out. Anyway, kudos to C.G. Jones and intellectualtakeout.org for making, I think, a really good case for why ancient books are one of the ways that you can recover true happiness. One other thing I'm going to share with you, this is the article of the day. If you've seen the Norman Rockwell classic painting, Saying Grace, this is a, a, a an elderly woman and a young boy sitting in a diner, a very busy diner outside of a factory somewhere, and uh, you can see a bunch of the concerned patr- patrons in the, or uh, interested patrons there in the diner Curiously looking over at this this elderly lady, and I assume it's her grandson, praying over their meal, saying grace for the food they're about to eat. Anthony Esselin gives some fascinating background to Rockwell's piece, as well as uh, he describes the hope that we might find our way individually back to that level of thankfulness. In other words, the one that uh, is less concerned with, well, are people going to think I'm weird if I thank God for the food that's in front of me? I got to give credit to uh, my friend Joe Joe Carey. Uh, Joe was uh, Glenn Beck's uh, chief of staff for, for quite some time. I had an opportunity to work with Joe a few years ago. And one thing that always impressed me was when we would go out to eat. And we traveled a lot, so we were we were often dining in restaurants. I don't care where it was. I don't care how calm or how noisy the restaurant was one of the things i always respected about joe was when the food was brought to our table or when we had our plates full at the buffet joe would always say do you mind if we take a moment to return thanks and it was never a big show everybody quiet so we can pray over our food you know that would have been showing off but i really respected that he was willing to do it no matter where and when and anthony esselin says we'd be better if we could get back to that mindset. This is The Brian Hyde Show.